Uh, If you want to turn back to James chapter 5 in your Bibles, and if you've still managed to hang on to the the little copy of James we gave you uh, nearly three months ago, well done. I've got no idea where mine is. This is the last week in our series in the book of James, a letter in the New Testament written by the brother of Jesus to Christians and churches. And we're going to look today at the, the closing few the closing thoughts, really, of James. We know that James is, has been concerned about a, a double-mindedness that can come into the church. People who say one thing but do another. We entitled this series, Faith That Works, Following Jesus in All of Life. And we saw from the very start, and I remember this, and hopefully you do too, that James has got this concern that people who trust in Jesus grow and mature and develop, that their actions would match their words, that they would become fruitful followers of Jesus. That's where he started and that's where he's going to end. A further call to follow Jesus with increasing integrity we're going to work through the the last eight verses together over the next half an hour or so and really just come back to that idea of following Jesus what does it mean for you for me for us to follow Jesus and firstly we're going to think about this it means following Jesus means following Jesus in all circumstances Let me read verse 13 again to us. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. There's a certain perception of church that thinks that church and the Christian life should be perfect, pristine. Sort of like if you've ever been to to look at one of these new housing developments and you've gone into the show home, like the one that they've built before they've even finished the rest and they've done it up and everything's perfect. Everything's brand new. The carpets are all lovely and squelchy under your feet. You know, your feet feet, uh, sink into them. And the furniture is lovely and there are no toys everywhere and there's no dirt and no dirt. Everything's perfect. And we can think that's what church ought to be like. That church is made up of people who are basically all doing wonderfully well. They've got nice homes, nice lives, maybe nice marriages, maybe even nice kids. That they are solid 75% plus attenders on a Sunday. That they can hold a tune when they sing. That they're in good health. And basically they've got no issues. And I don't say that to say that some people might think, we can think that's what church is like. We can think that when we look at ourselves and we think that's what everybody else is like. That church is full of good people. When James writes to the church, and as he finishes up this letter, listen to the the sort of church that he describes, people that are in trouble. 
people that are happy, people that are sick, people that have got sin to confess, people who wonder from the truth. This is no show home. This is more like the home of our hamster, Nibbles. It's messy and it smells. Because that's really what church is. Far more than the perfect show home. And perhaps that's not what you expect of church. Perhaps that's not what you imagine the rest of church to be like outside of your own messiness. But James says, no matter your current circumstances, I'm going to offer you all the same advice and the same command. Take it, whatever it is, the circumstance of your day, take it to God. If you're troubled, pray. If you're happy, praise. If you're sick, get other people in to pray for you. Turn to God. One writer says, the reality of God and his goodness is to impinge constantly on everyday life. He says, it is a lovely picture of a church in which people naturally turn bad news into prayer and good news into praise. There are no circumstances in which turning to God is not the right response. For we ought to say there are no circumstances in your life, in our life, that God is not interested in. The God that James has been describing over these past three months to us, in the midst of all his commands and straightforwardness and just blunt Yorkshireness, he's given us an insight into the character of God. A God who cares. A God who lifts up those who humble themselves. A God who is in charge. A God who is invested in the lives of his people. If you've still got your, your James journal, why don't you this week sit down and just go through again and highlight every little bit of information that we get told about God. And you'll be surprised at just how much James gives us. This is a God who cares, a God who is just. And the res right response to all circumstances is to take them to God and to allow him to shape our response to those circumstances. For we know, don't we, that often we don't respond rightly to circumstances. We know what it is. To ignore God when things are going great. And we know what it is to blame God when things are not going great. And James says, turn to God in all and every circumstance. Let him shape you. As you turn to him, whether in prayer and desperation or praise and joy. Let him remind you that God is working for your good in all things. I don't want to stop and just go, do it now. Just shut your eyes, ignore me for 20 seconds. It's easier if you're at home. Just think about your circumstances right now. What does it look like to turn to God? 
I think James is telling us that whatever our circumstances, and therefore whatever our circumstances tomorrow, as yet unknown, we need to prioritise prayer. Richard's announced that we've got a meeting on Thursday. Spend some time praying the Bible, letting God's word shape our prayers. We did it a couple of times last month. I can't tell you, it was just good to let God speak into our lives. If you find prayer hard, come along on Thursday, half seven, down at church. Or pray with a friend. Pray with your children. Let us prioritise prayer. So follow Jesus in every circumstance. But then secondly, follow Jesus with confession and not compromise. So we're to follow Jesus in all circumstances. But we're also to follow Jesus fully, wholly in all those circumstances. The the reminder that James has given us and the warning that he's given us again and again is not to be people of two minds doing this and that kind of half in half out with God and with Jesus and so we reach this this section which is hard and complicated let me read it again to us from verse 14 is anyone among you ill let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. One of the realities of church life is that there are people who are sick. We have people Steve's already prayed for some, not even all, of the people in our church family who are sick right now, who are struggling with ill health. And then we get this verse that seems to suggest that if we follow the right formula, then all of those sick people could be healed. And maybe you're sat there thinking, well, the elders of our church have clearly getting it wrong. I think that's one way to read it. Call the elders. The person seems to be so sick that they can't come out themselves. Call the elders over. They can bring their oil to anoint them. And then if they have the prayer offered in faith, the sick person will be made well. This is not just some academic question. Even this week, we've had people in our church in hospital. And for, I guess, all of us will know people that are really sick. Or we've had people who were really sick in our lives and have died. Should they have just followed the formula? Maybe they did. Let's just think for a minute about some bigger principles. And the first one is this. God can heal. Look at Jesus' ministry. When God steps into this world as a man, God, Jesus heals people. Look at the countless people who were restored to full health by him. The lame walked. The blind were made to see. The deaf to hear. 
the leper was cleansed. So God can and does heal people. Every kind of sickness is within the grasp of God to eradicate in a moment. But secondly, we need to see that God does not always choose to heal people in this life. Sometimes not immediately, and sometimes not at all. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians of a a physical struggle that he's had, some form of, of illness. He calls it a thorn in his flesh, some sort of physical ailment. And he prays, he tells us, three times for it to be removed. And God says, no. And we know of others in the Bible who were sick. So sometimes God chooses not to heal people. Now, alongside that, we know that God has promised that ultimately he will bring us to a new reality, a new earth, a new life, where death and sin and sickness are no more. We've already sung a little bit about that, looking forward. Some of the closing words of the Bible say this about God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will come a moment when Christ has returned, when the world for Christ's people will have no sickness in it, no death. So when we read verse 15, we need to recognise that there must be some qualifications or clarifications to what James is saying there and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well so notice what he surrounds it with look what follows if they have sinned they will be forgiven therefore confess your sins to each other And pray for each other so that you may be healed. James ties in sin with this sickness that he's talking about. A sentence or two about confession. About this public acknowledgement of wrongdoing against God. The if in in verse uh, 15 there. If they have sinned. Could also be translated even though. So this person calls the elders and the elders anoint them and pray for them, a prayer full of faith, even if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. It seems as though the illness that James is talking about is being tied together with a particular sin. That when that sin has been acknowledged publicly enough that this person has shared it with the leadership of the church. That when it is confessed and repented of, that God then will heal the person from that sickness. Now again, we need to go wider than James to understand what God teaches us about tying together sin and suffering. 
and sin and sickness. Sickness is in our world because of sin, generally. The world is broken and messed up because humanity has turned away from God. But we know two things. One is that we can't draw straight lines ourselves between what we do and what happens to us. We can't. And Jesus tells us that. Read the story in John chapter 9, where Jesus is interacting with his disciples about somebody who is sick. And they say, Jesus, draw a straight line for us. Tell us what they did to end up in this situation. And Jesus says, nothing. He acknowledges that there is sickness that is not tied to a specific action. But the counterpoint to that is the Bible gives us examples where there is suffering and sickness from a specific action. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 11 about people who are sick and even dying or falling asleep, Paul tells us, because of their, how they treat one another when the church gathers together. And Paul draws us a straight line between that behaviour and their sickness. And it's seemingly something like that that James is addressing here. Maybe it's one of the issues that he specifically talked about in this letter. About how the wealthy have treated the poor. About how people have spoken. Or one of the, the many other things. God has brought sickness because of a specific sin that must be acknowledged and repented of, turned away from. Hence the involvement of the leaders of the church, and then he broadens it out as in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you might be healed. Something presumably obvious and public where people have turned away from God and God has made them aware of it, possibly through James. And they need to publicly confess, we have turned away from God and now we are turning back to him. And in those circumstances, as the elders pray over that person, they will be healed. It's complicated and it's painful. But I hope that gives us some idea that as James speaks to this church, he's still driving home this, what it means to follow Jesus. That we cannot walk along in compromise. And just to, to bring it home, he says, this is what this prayer looks like. How powerful it is to turn to God, admitting that you've got things wrong, and trusting in him for healing and for forgiveness. He says, let me point you to Elijah. Now, if you're new to church or are not familiar with the Bible, Elijah is a character from what we call the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before James's time before Jesus' time. He was a prophet, a man sent from God to address and to confront a wicked king, a king of God's people, a man called Ahab, 
but not just the king, but also the people, people who had walked away from God and away from his truth, who were living life how they wanted to, who were selfish, who were double-minded, still giving the public lip service to, yes, we we worship God, but we're also going to worship this other God who, to be honest, seems to give us more of what we want. And James says, do you remember Elijah? Do you remember how he prayed? And it changed the world. Elijah, let me read from verse 17, was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. When Elijah sees what the people and the king are doing, he prays. And he prays that God's will and justice would be done. And so he prays for the rain to stop. This is one of the things that God, in Deuteronomy, start of the Bible, if you take your notes, chapter 28, verse 22 and 23, God had said, if people turn their back on me, I will send drought. I will send consequences to show them how serious it is. And Elijah prayed, and there was not a drop of rain for three and a half years. And then James says, and then he prayed again. And he he condenses three and a half years into a sentence, into a second. But what changes? Why does then Elijah pray for rain? Well, you can read the amazing story of the great God contest on Mount Carmel in in 1 Kings chapter 18. But here's what it boils down to. A people who have turned their back on God are brought to confess the Lord, he is God. They say, we've got it wrong. And so publicly and out loud so that everybody can hear, they say, we got it wrong. And God's in charge. They confess their sins. And then God answers Elijah's prayer. And the rain comes. And the crops grow. And people can eat. There is a fruitfulness as a result of this confession. And then prayer. And a God who answers prayer. Powerful and effective is how James describes it. Not because God is some sort of cosmic slot machine, but because God is invested in the holiness and righteousness of his people. God is invested in his people living in a way that honours him and does them good. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, is a God who is not prepared to sit back And allow his people to accept less than. He loves them so much that he is willing to bring hardship and suffering. So that they will trust him and find more life. So there is no blanket promise for healing in this life. But instead following Jesus means living a life full of confession of admitting when we get it wrong 
amongst the church, amongst God's people, and doing away with compromise. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you said to another Christian, I sinned? Not, I got that wrong. Not, well, I did do that, but when was the last time we said, I didn't follow God in that? I suspect if the answer is, I can't remember, that James would be saying to us, and I think God is saying to us, there's something missing in our lives. Because God doesn't want compromise. And the reality is, is that we walk through this life following Jesus, we make mistakes. And more than that, we sometimes just choose to go the opposite way. And if we want to follow Jesus... We have got to be able to acknowledge and confess when we sin. Finally, let's end where James ends. Following Jesus with hope and with help. How's James going to finish out his letter? By saying, guys, there's wonderful hope for this broken, flawed church. A church just like ours. And there's not just hope, but there's also help. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think James has been unbelievably self-aware here and Acknowledging the reality of what happens when God speaks to his people. The work of the Spirit of God is to lead God's people into truth. And part of that is making them aware of sin. That's uncomfortable. And none of us really choose that. But we've just seen that God is so invested in the holiness of people. He's willing to make it a little bit awkward and a little bit difficult. Because he loves us. So in the same way that those security devices at the, at the entrance of supermarkets will bleep if you're walking out with something that you haven't paid for, as we come to before God and we sit under God's word, God the Spirit is going to bring our attention to where we fall short. Not because we're trying to nick off with something, but because he wants us to be righteous and holy. He wants us to be mature and maturing. God is going to expose the reality of wayward lives and wayward hearts. But, but notice that there is help. There is help for the wanderer. Because as James finishes this letter, he talks to kind of the other people around us. And he says... There's a chance to bring people back. There's a chance to restore people who are wandering from the truth. How good is it, is it to be on a team? 
Maybe it's a work team, maybe it's a sports team. But to be alongside other people who are invested in the same goal as you. And people who have got other skills or other knowledge or more experience. And people who can help you when you're weak. It's a good experience. As James leans into the church here, he says, this is like a team. And there is hope for those that are struggling. I think that's James, what James is doing in writing this. He's being part of the team, part of the family. He's saying, I care so much for you that I'm going to write these hard things because I want to pull you back. We're going to think in a minute about what that practically looks like. But let's think for a second about the hope. The help is the church and our teammates and our family members. But the hope, the hope is that there is a God who restores the wonderer. If you read these final verses of James, it seems that James has been reading Matthew chapter 18. And this listening to the teachings of Jesus Maybe you picked up on on some of the the familiar language. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about people who are trusting in Jesus, but are, well, just little and weak and vulnerable. And he tells a story about a man who owns a hundred sheep. And this one weak, little vulnerable sheep wanders off. And the owner of the sheep knows his sheep so well that he he sees in a moment. He doesn't see the 99 that are still here and thinks, oh, everything's fine. He goes, there's one missing. And that one weak little wandering sheep I'm going for. I care about him or her. And so he leaves the 99 on the hillside and he goes to find the one that has been lost. And he says, if he finds it, He takes greater joy in bringing back that one lost, wandering little sheep than he does in the other 99. And he says, this is what God is like with his children. He is like the owner of that sheep who cares about the individual and does everything to bring them back. As we walk through James, God has been at work in our hearts, revealing our sin, pushing on us about all sorts of things, about the way that we speak, about what we do with our wealth, about our self-confidence that says, I know what I'm doing tomorrow, that doesn't even bring God into that equation, about the arrogance of knowing all the right things to say but being completely unchanged. And as God has pushed on us, maybe you're even here this afternoon and you think, I'm I'm so far away. And maybe you're so good at playing the game that nobody else knows it. But you do. You know how, how wondering you are. Here is the hope as we follow Jesus that our God is a God who pursues the wanderer. Who brings them back. Who will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. God's desire for you 
today is that you would repent and that you would turn back to him. And so he has come searching for you. He's calling your name. Will you return to him? There's another part of the Bible that I think James has got in mind here, and it's Psalm 32, a song. Sing about the realities of sin and confession and of physical consequences for not confessing sin. I'm going to quote a few lines from this psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The one who restores, James says, can cover over a multitude of sins. Not covering over in the way that we hide dirt and sweep it under the rug, which works for a moment, but is bound to be exposed at some point. But covered over in the way that a dirty mark on the wall is covered over by a fresh layer of paint, never to be seen again, never to be spotted covered over in a way that means that it has been taken away forever dealt with fully completely this is the great work of Jesus to people who have fallen short of the standard of God to people who he is making aware of how wicked and evil they are not because he wants to put them down but because he wants to raise them up. Didn't we see that when Rob preached from chapter 4 a few weeks ago? The God who exalts those who humble themselves. That's God's desire to lift us up. This is the work of Jesus through his death on the cross. To take sin away from us forever by taking it upon himself, by suffering in our place. Imagine what it would be like for the things that you hope that nobody else will ever find out to be taken away from you forever, to never to be held account for. That's what Jesus does. This is the hope, the hope that Jesus offers, true and full and everlasting forgiveness. And then James says, and there's help for us, because we forget that. And we ignore that sometimes. Jesus saves us into a family to walk alongside us and says part of our role as one of God's people is to remind other people of Jesus. To bring them back when they have fallen away. To gently and firmly 
and frequently and lovingly with wisdom and with truth bring back wonders. Do we know each other well enough to spot the wonder? Are we honest enough with other people that they could see our wondering? Do we love one another enough to receive help and truth from each other? Do we love each other enough to offer help and truth? Because in this messy, broken down, definitely not a show house church, there are opportunities ongoing to be involved in the work of Jesus, to point people to him, to restore those who are wondering. And we do it by pointing them again to Jesus, the God who seeks and saves that which is lost. And that love is costly. I think James knew that. Remember that James is the brother of Jesus. And remember that all that we get about James, really until after Jesus is, has, has died, resurrected, gone back to heaven, all we get from Jesus' family, apart from his mother, is, yeah, we're not sure Jesus is all that. They're unimpressed. They were disbelieving unbelieving they had scorned and ignored Jesus and yet here was a man who knew what it was to have been brought back to have been restored and forgiven to be part of a family where his brother did not give up on him and his desire for us is to be involved in that work with one another to love one another to even on occasion turn a sinner from the error of their way to save them from death and to cover over a multitude of sins. It's Jesus that does that work. But what a privilege it is to be given a role as part of his people, to pull each other along, to drag each other back on occasion from the edge of the cliff and to keep pushing on until Jesus returns. And when all the messiness will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of James. Father, we thank you for the way that it speaks in a different way to us. We thank you for its bluntness. Lord, but we thank you for what it reveals about you. You are the God who is a judge. But you are a God who whenever your people humble themselves, all people humble themselves, Father, you raise them up. You are the God we see in Jesus. And we pray, Father, as we close out this series, Lord, that we would be not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Father, let our testimony be in five years, ten years, however long you give us, Lord, that we have been a church Lord, that has loved each other like you love us. Lord, a church that is growing in integrity, growing in openness. Lord, not afraid to confess our sins, 
delighting to remind each other that there is a God who not only hears our confession, but grants forgiveness for those that have sinned. A God who has modelled that and won that for us at the cross. Father, let your word have a long-lasting, even eternal impact on us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.